The Lord be with you, everyone. And I want to ask a question, more than give a text. I, I want to ask the question. The question is, what do you see? Uh, actually, the Lord asked that question of Jeremiah, which started his entire ministry. Um, but I, I want to ask the question because that's what we've been talking about. And now let's sort of lock it in. Because everybody, everybody, without exception, they are seeing and what they see in their inmost self is that which is the engine, the direction of their whole life. If we look at a person's life, it is but the belated announcement of what they've been seeing within this long time. So what do you see is a very important question. There is only one truth. I don't think I need to keep on very much about that. We know Jesus said, I am the truth. That is, he doesn't have a bit of it. He is truth. He is, and the word truth might be better understood in the language of the New Testament as undergirding reality. Jesus is saying there is only one reality, and that is him. And therefore, the life that is founded, rooted in him, is a life that is portraying reality. But of course, there are multitudes of people and they see different, and, and I'll say realities, it's realities to them, it's not the reality, but they see what they believe to be reality. And it's out of that, out of that seeing of reality within us that we build, or the word that imagination is in the scripture, uh, framing. And if you're a carpenter, contractor, you know what it is to frame a house. It's the skeleton upon which the whole flesh is going to be put. And so the imagination is the framing place. It is where on the basis of that reality that you see, whether it be the truth or a lie or a distortion, but whatever it is, that's where we are building, framing our lives. Or to use what we've been saying for the last two weeks, um, it, it's here, right here, that we plant seeds. And, and it's seeds that we are seeing within us and declare to be truth that, that, that becomes a visible substance of our life. And so every one of us begin tomorrow's life in the invisible imaginations of today. Now, it says in the book of Proverbs, and this is quoted so much. Have you thought about it? It says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And notice think there many times in the scripture, <clears throat> although it doesn't say the word imagination, it takes in that whole invisible area where thoughts back and forth with all the images attached to them. That, that is how the Bible thinks. And then it says specifically in the heart, and notice that it's not saying that we think in our heads. We are thinking in our heart, and that really specifies imagination. Uh, think in your heart. That's where we not only see the pictures of how we perceive ourselves and the meaning of life, but also that's where we actually feel it and taste it. Talk about that more in a minute. But it says, as a man thinks, as a man, you could say the word meditate, as a man imagines in his heart, in his core center, that movie theater within you. It goes on, so he is. It doesn't say so he becomes. As you are thinking, that's your isness. It will show up later on. It's here that is the purpose. It's here that is the I amness of you. 
and then how you see yourself and know yourself and taste yourself and feel yourself, it becomes that in substance, physical material, or the one that we ended with last week, uh, out of the heart, there we go again, you see that center, that inner movie theater, out of the heart are the issues of life. The wellspring, those great fountains of living water, it says they originate in the heart. So again, let me say it's very important. What, what, what do you see? What do you see? And only you know what you see. This is all invisible to the outside world, though it soon becomes visible. But what, what are you seeing? What are you seeing concerning yourself? What are you seeing concerning who God is? Well, that's a massive thing there in, in your heart. Um, what, what do you see concerning the situations of your life right now? These are the questions. So I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to take 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now you can look at it, but I'm not going to tell the story because I think everybody here knows the story, I think. It's the story of David and Goliath. And although it's a jolly good story, um, I, I want to do something, I think, um, more important than the story. And that is to get inside the head and the heart and the imagination of the main characters. Because what happens in the story of David and Goliath um, didn't just happen out there. It didn't occur in the moment it was seen. It had been part of the heart imagination of all the characters long before this. Ever thought of that? And so let, let's go for it. And, and the story, as I'll refer to it in bits and pieces, you remember that it was a standoff. Uh, the Philistines, they, they were a mean group of people. And let's just leave it at that. But they had their champion, which was the gigantic Goliath. And again, we could say a lot about that, except to say he was nearly 10 feet tall. He was well proportioned. His armor and his weapons were proportioned too. And so he was a terrifying sight, especially when he put on his bronze armor, which reflected the sun and so on. And so he comes from the um, armies of the Philistines who had come with no other agenda than to kill off the Israelites and steal their land. That's, they were the invaders. And um, we, we were in this place where it happened. It's called the Valley of Elah. And we were there and I divided the people with me one side to one side. So we played Philistines in Israel. So we could see how Goliath would come down into the valley um, and he would confront the armies of Israel who had come to protect their land. And as he comes, this gigantic person, I can't imagine how the chap walked in all his armor. But anyway, he comes and he confronts Israel. And Israel, the king, was Saul. And in those days, king meant you were there at the front of the battle, leading your armies. And so it's really Goliath and Saul, that's what we're talking about. But there were the armies of Israel that were of one mind with Saul. And so here there's a standoff. And in that standoff, every morning, every evening, Goliath came and challenged Israel, mocking them. Give me a man. Let, let's have a one-on-one -on -one and that will be the end of the battle. Whoever wins, wins the whole jolly lot. And so the six weeks, what's that? 84 times Goliath had challenged the people. It gets a bit wearisome. Six weeks. That's 40 days. Twice a day. So it spoiled your breakfast, ruined your dinner. And... and, and then 
um, as, as the, the thing is going on, I've got to ask the question, what does Goliath see? And that's, you see, this is incredible patience that this chap has because 84 times and there's no movement from Israel except they, they look terrified. But no one comes to answer his challenge and yet he's back again and back again and back again. Where, where, where does that, that patience, where's it, where's it come from? It comes from what he sees, unless he had a very distinct imagination working in his approach to Israel. He never would have kept it up for six weeks. Now, this is where this is important. Goliath is very obviously um, a man who today we would say outside of Christ and in those days, he was outside of the covenant of Israel, and so by choice. And so he's living in the darkness of the lie, uh, the lie that he, the God is separated, that this, this man is his own man. It's ignorance of any understanding of God whatsoever. And his imagination built on that darkness and that lie, that twisted reality, he builds his life and he does so with the imagination. Now, this is why many people get upset when I talk about imagination because they say, well, you know, the, the world imagines and are we just now doing a worldly thing to bring forth the Christian life, the sort of a new age thing? Well, understand this. Imagination is part of being human. And therefore, when we meet the Goliaths, yes, they use their imagination. They shape their life. They frame their life by what they imagine. Where, where do you think all the great inventions come from? What about the cell phone that you're using right now, the computer? It came from the imaginations of humans who did not necessarily know reality, that they were in a darkness, yet that didn't alter the fact that they could, with their imagination, I was going to say effect, it's a stronger word than that. It means actually create the the body i had people are sick because of their imaginations people are also healthy because of their imaginations people live in poverty by their imagination people invent by their imagination and yet they are in a state of darkness now let me read what the scripture says about what we today would call sinners. But just a minute, before we say that, in, in Ephesians 4.17, how does it describe persons outside of Christ? It says that you walk no longer as the nations do, in the futility of their mind. This doesn't say there's a sin nature. It says there is a futility, which means going around and around in aimless circles because you don't know who you are or where you are or why you are. Just around and around. That's the meaning of the word. So he says that the characteristic of, of the nations outside of Christ um, is a futility of their mind. Their mind, yes, we've said that contains the idea in Scripture of imagination. And when they think of life, it's just plain emptiness. All they do is live their resume around and around, on and on, around and around. Then it says in verse 18, being darkened in their understanding. When are we going to get to sin nature? We're not. It says it's all here. It's in your heart and head. Here you've been darkened. Here, you don't know what's going on. And around you go, and around you go, and your understanding of life is darkened and twisted. And it says excluded from the life of God. 
because of the ignorance that is in them. And so I said that they just plain don't know. And in their ignorance and their blindness to truth, they come up with this whole way of life. But it arises out of how they see themselves. That's where Satan put the lie, right there in the perceptions of the heart. And it says, because of the hardness of their heart, which means they are stubbornly believing that their twisted reality is reality. Well, out of that comes, and then he begins to talk about their behavior. But it's not because they, 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 they've got sin nature. It means there has been inserted into that place within where they frame and fashion their life as darkness and blindness and actually stupidity because they just go around in circles. But it doesn't mean they, they don't have imagination. No, that's how it all works. That's how sin actually becomes substance and behavior by the ignorance. So it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, speaking again of the condition of those that don't know Jesus, it says the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the mind of those who do not believe. Blinded the mind. You see, it's, it's there where you innerly see that you, you don't get it. You don't, haven't you ever talked to people like that? They just don't get it. They don't get it. Well, they're, they're blinded to it from within. And, and, and it's interesting when the, the, the light of the gospel does go in, have you heard that? I, I get it. I get it. And there's, I never heard that before. You jolly well did. I've been talking to you for the last 10 years. But you see, it's they're blinded. And when it comes to using imagination for the inventions of life, it says in Genesis 11, and God himself is speaking. And he says of those who built the Tower of Babel, for goodness sake, he said of them that whatever they can imagine, they will be able to do it. So, yes, Goliath imagined, and that was the force. That was, that was the terrible energy that came against Israel. That's how he sees them. They're nobodies. And, and he, he, his only agenda is to crush them like insects. I mean, they're nothing. Because he wants to take, steal their land. And he's not only seen that, but he, you understand what I mean when he tastes it? You know, there, 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 there rises such an excitement about these. You can taste it. You can feel it down in that place. And that is what keeps the man going for six weeks, twice a day. There's no doubt in his mind. He's got this. He can afford to wait. He's seen it already. He's tasted it. He felt like it, uh, of moving into Israel and calling it his. He's got it. And, and there is, and the word used in scripture is energy. The Greek word is energia, but I mean energy. And, and it says in Ephesians 2 that in these persons that are um, disobedient, it calls them, it says the, the spirit that is working, what energy is the It's the energy of darkness is working. And it comes through the imagination. Okay, that's Goliath who comes. But then he comes against Saul, the king of Israel, and all the armies of Israel that are there. And what's he doing? in his challenge, but more importantly, in the imagination at the back of his challenge, that drives his challenge, he's sowing seeds, sowing seeds into the imagination of Israel. You, you get me? He, he's, he said, I've come to take you, but you can have a go at it. He said, you can send someone to try and stop me, but, and he's laughing at the idea. And that's part of the, the terror that no one is going to go out there and, and challenge him. You see, fear, hear me very carefully, fear, which of course you're seeing doomsday in your imagination, 
fear strips us naked of all protection. These people, Israel, saw the king. They were afraid of Goliath because they had allowed his words to take a hold of them. And in so doing, they have stripped themselves naked of any protection against him. That which you fear is drawn toward you. And as it's drawn toward you, strips you of any protection, destroys your immune system of spirit, mind, emotions, as well as your body. So there was nothing in them to say no. Just they're receiving it, you see, receiving it. Why, why would they do that? I mean, this is Israel. They, they, they have covenant with God. God said he is with them. What, what are they doing? And the word that is in the Old Testament is they had forgotten. And that word, and uh, some of you will remember we did uh, a number of messages on this, that the word remember and the word forget is very different in Hebrew to what it is in English. And the word forget has nothing to do with amnesia. It's got nothing to do with bad memory. It's, it's very specific. In fact, you can very well remember in the Western sense. I mean, I know it happened. But the word forget in the Hebrew language means that they have left the event we're talking about or the word spoken. They've been left back there in history whenever they were said or whenever it happened, and they're locked into that history back there. And as for today, well, it's quite irrelevant, isn't it? It, it happened, what, even if it's 10 years ago, but 100 years ago, to what, whatever, it happened, God said that, but so what? That's irrelevant today. It, it happened then, and that's where we keep it, back in the past. That's to forget. It means you're not operating out of that truth. You are not living by those promises. As far as you're concerned, well, it was nice, it sounds good, but it's irrelevant to me in this situation. You can sing songs about it, hear sermons about it, but in fact, there's nothing for it to do in my life. You've forgotten, though you could probably pass an exam on the facts. But... You get it? So they'd forgotten the Exodus, you know, because they hadn't forgotten in our, in our Western sense. But um, to them, well, it happened. There was a Moses, the Red Sea did open, and Egypt was, was defeated. But so what? We're facing Goliath, and you tell us what well, that's got to do with us today. They forgot. They forgot the covenant in which God gave himself away to them and said, I'm with you, I'll never forsake you. And, and very specifically to this situation, Deuteronomy 20, which is a key chapter to all the stories of the Old Testament. He, the Lord said, uh, I, I am your protector. And he said, when anyone comes to take your land, anyone comes to invade you for no reason, except their greed, then remember that. And remember that the battle is mine. The actual words are the battle is the Lord's. So you don't have to worry. Uh, <clears throat> I'll handle it. So they went on to say, actually in Deuteronomy 20, that, that if you've got work to do at home and you had to leave it to come to the battle, well, you don't have to stay because the battle is the Lord's. So off you go. You can go back home and do whatever you had to do. And, and then, as I'm sure plenty left, but then the, the, he says, is anybody afraid? Because if you're afraid, get out of here as fast as you can. The battle is the Lord's. Why, why are they so insistent? Because fear is, fear is worse than the virus. You catch fear and enter into a herd mentality. Everybody's got the same fear. And it's, it works quicker than a virus. And so 
the Lord says, the battle is mine, but do not allow one fearful person to be around because they will spread their fear disease faster than anything else. And so get rid of them. And it would mean that even if there's only one or two people left, the Lord said, that's fine because the battle is mine. All of that they had forgotten because Saul, the king, was afraid and everybody else was afraid, all the army. And so um, you've got a whole bunch of people that according to the covenant should have gone home. They're catching it from each other. And in their, their forgetting, they also forgot who they were, and they, they imagined themselves. Actually, it's a hangover. They never really got over what happened. Do you remember when the, the 10 spies came back from looking at this very land they're now in? And do you remember what they said? That we saw ourselves Boy, is that so true? They said, we looked at ourselves and we saw ourselves as grasshoppers. And because we saw ourselves as grasshoppers, we know that's the truth. And, and therefore, <clears throat> the inhabitants of the land, which were just like Goliath, see us as grasshoppers. And therefore, if we go in the land, we'll be destroyed. That was their identity when they just got through hearing God say that you, you have strength beyond strength. You have no help beyond no how, and nothing is impossible for you. And they said, no, we're little grasshoppers. We're insignificant. We chirp away, and we, we look stupid, and we hop off. And, and we're just sitting there ready to be crushed. That's who we are. Well, they never got over that. This is a long time after that but they're still acting in the same way. I'm no good. I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. He's got it. She's got it. I don't. Grasshopper. In fact, the imagination of Goliath has married the imagination of Israel. They now see themselves as Goliath thinks of them. See, imagination has an energy. Your neighbors are afraid. Your neighbors are afraid. Your neighbors are afraid. What happens is an energy there, and you feel it encroaching on you, and you begin to catch their fear. Well, Goliath, uh, it was, see, they didn't have um, Fox News or CNN or even texting, you know. So, Goliath sort of had his own radio station. Every morning, the news at breakfast, he would come and bellow out in that terrifying voice that echoed because of the way the, the hills were. It just echoed around the entire army. The mocking of the people, the sneering of their God that they said they trusted in, and the challenge to come and meet me. And... and that was the morning news. And they all stood there, you know, you know, bug-eyed like deers in a headlight, and they, they listened. And as they listened, it married their own imagination, and they began to think of themselves as Goliath thought of them. They began to believe in Goliath's agenda. Does that sound familiar? And of course, then you've got to have the six o'clock news to hear the same stupid thing. And so here he comes again. And they all stood there and listened. And everything that had happened in the morning is only now confirmed. They're terrified because they're now believing about themselves what he believes. And it resulted, and read it. This is, you can read it. It says that they, they suddenly fled. And they, they were in despair and dismay. They were terrified. The words used for extreme words, hopeless. They were paralyzed before this fellow. And he wouldn't give up. You see, I'll be back in the morning. Uh, tune in, your friendly breakfast news. We'll tell you everything that's wrong and we'll tell you how you're going to die. And you love it, don't you? You, you just listen. 
take it in and suck it in and say, that's me. They're victims. They cower. They blame. Of course, blame God. Why do you allow this? God isn't allowing it. They are. They tune to that station every day and they fuel their imagination to see themselves and they frame up the life of their future, which is disaster. Or maybe if they prayed, oh God, do something. God, God is not a magician that waves a wand from the sky. He works deeply inside of us. I suppose they blame salt. Victims always blame everybody. And that herd mentality. Uh, here we see a lot of it with the deer, the, uh, the herd. And they're all eating. And one of them looks up and sees something. And, and wagged his white tail. And that's the signal. Suddenly the entire herd is running and I'd say 95% of the herd doesn't even know why. They just, it's blind fear. They're, they're running because we're together and we do it together. And I suppose then when they stop and start eating again, they're consoling each other and agreeing that it was the right thing to do to have fear. Though no one can remember really, you know, the, why, why we did that. And so the whole of Israel, beginning with the king, they were all in this terrible pulse beat of an imagination that already had surrendered, an imagination that already saw their own coffins. And yet, these people, they were the inheritors of covenant promises in which God gave himself to them. But they've forgotten, and they're blind. Six weeks. 84 times. And I guess it would be, if you're counting, the 84th or 85th broadcast of Goliath in the morning when the third person of, what do you see, is David. Now, please get this. We have lived much by by um, sentimentality with these stories. But David, you, you do know he was around 14 or 15 at this time. He was, a, he was too young to be in the military. And in those days, they would take just about anybody. But he was too young, 14-year-old kid. And, and he was from the hills. Yeah, I mean, today he would be hillbilly. You could tell by his accent, he's more than a country kid. He's up from the hills. And if you remember, the family didn't like him. He's the runt of the family. And for whatever reason, they were very happy to keep him up in the hills, looking after the sheep. And that was the first thing that the brothers said when he comes down to the battlefield to meet his brothers, that's, they said, well, why aren't you looking after your sheep? He was there. Their dad, Jesse, had um, put together a care package, um, you know, cookies and stuff. And he said, take this to your brothers. Get a report on the battle, see how it's going. But for a 14-year-old kid who can't go with his big brothers, you see, and now he's got, he's got the food. That means he can go right down into the battlefield. He can go there and see. I mean, you could, a 14-year-old kid, this is the biggest thing that happened. There was no television. This, this was the biggest exciting thing you can imagine. To actually see a battle of the people of God protecting the land God has given them. And to see his brothers, and he can imagine them being great men of God. So he's totally unprepared for the crisis, you see. There was no news. So you had to go there to find out. So he doesn't know about Goliath. And he knows his brothers have been gone for six weeks. And something surely has happened. Good. He's totally unprepared. He's just a kid whistling his way 
to the biggest exciting thing of his life. This is almost Disneyland. He's going to the battlefield. And when he arrived on the scene, he saw, he saw exactly the same thing that Goliath saw from his perspective, Israel saw from their perspective. He saw it. Only he is <clears throat> unique, at least in that situation, because he saw infinitely more than anybody else did. Did you hear me? So here you've got Goliath's imagination, but David sees more and a greater reality than Goliath's imagination. And Israel in their pathetic state, but David sees Israel and himself in that situation as more than Israel could ever dream or imagine because he imagines the truth, or should I say the true truth, the real reality. Is it an amazing verse? And um, who knows, I might try it next week. I don't think so, but Hebrews eleven twenty seven. all I do is quote it. And it's in the Passion Translation down in the notes. <clears throat> it says, Moses was patient for the invisible as though he were able to see it come to be. Did you get that? Moses, I think in our versions, it says Moses endured. But Moses was patient. Why? Because he could see something nobody else could see. But it was invisible, you see, but not to Moses, because he was seeing down there. So Moses was patient for the invisible. I can wait. I've seen it. You say, I've seen it. You haven't seen it. I've seen it. I've seen the invisible. So I can be patient. What did we say? Jesus said, well, he said that about two weeks ago, where Jesus said to the Samaritan, the hour is coming. Then he said, and now is. So he said, it is. Or I could say, I've seen it. I've tasted it. I've touched it. But it's coming. You'll see it. Because it already is. Moses was patient. Because he had already, he knew what the future held. I've got the invisible. I've seen it. And he said, for the invisible, as though he was able to see it come to be. To him it happened. I got it. We'll just walk through this period, but, but it's a done deal. Well, that, that, was, that was David for sure. He lived from an invisible that Goliath could not imagine. An Israelite couldn't imagine either. Please, do you hear that? I'm not talking about a Superman. I'm talking about a 14-year-old kid from the hills. <laughs> But when he walked into that battlefield, into the middle of terrified soldiers, and was just in time to hear the nine o'clock news in the morning as Goliath is bellowing out his usual. And there's all the usual herd, fear, panic, we're all dead sort of thing. And here stands David. Now, he heard what they heard. He sees what they see, but he's from an invisible. He sees that which is not visible, and he knows that is reality. And that which is invisible and reality, but not yet seen, he sees that invisible and says, that's it. That's the truth. So Goliath is not the truth. That is just ramblings of his imagination, empowered by the spirit of darkness. And all your fear is not the ultimate truth. That's because you've forgotten who you are. 
what he saw, which was invisible to everybody else, was the only reality on that battlefield. What he could see in the images of imagination, based on the reality of God's covenant word, was the only reality on that battlefield. And when such a person walks in, everybody feels it, even though they can't put a finger on it. It was as if the sun had begun to rise and the first streaks of dawn are, are filling the sky. And, and it was the way this little kid talked. Suddenly there's... Could it, could, it, could it be? What's he saying? He's not talking like a... He's not one of the herd. He hasn't married Goliath's imagination. And they don't get it. But there's hope. The sun is rising. And, and the sun rising is God's love, his covenant love that said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And finally, here's a little chap I can come to you through. In fact, that little hillbilly teenager, he was the very presence of God's love for Israel right there. It, love, hope, light, reality, truth was radiating from him quite invisibly, but affecting everybody. You know how that is. We certainly know how it works negatively when an angry, bitter old person comes in. Everybody feels it. And darkness comes on the conversations. When you, see, when you walk into a situation, Jesus said, Jesus said of you and me, you are the light of the world. The world being the world system. He didn't say after you fasted, prayed, and cried in agony to me for revival. He just simply said, you are that. That is. See, David believed that. It's like that. They'd forgotten it. You know, I mean, daft words. And like, I'm the light of the world. Forget that. As for somebody else, David took it seriously. Right, that's what I mean. he, he, this little kid, he was the new possible. Everybody says the only possible here is what Goliath is saying. David was a new possible, a new possible. There, there could be something else happening here, not what Goliath says. Is it possible? Is it possible the kid's right? He, he saw as reality and therefore possible that which no one else saw, no one had ever dreamed of, even though it was screaming at them from every book of their Bible. But he saw it. You could say he is the new seed that is about to be sown into this situation and bring forth much fruit. I guess what I'm trying to say is that you and I, we are transmitters. You might as well get that. We are transmitters. That which we see, we are transmitting unconsciously most of the time. In every word we say, in every twitch of our face, in every sparkle in our eye, we're transmitters. We are broadcasting everything that we see in our invisible. And here he is, David. He's in the world. He's in the world system that day, but he's not of it. He is thinking thoughts birthed in his imagination, new possible, that to him is the only possible because it's backed by God. You could say that he was invisibly clothed. You see, I've already said Israel finds themselves quite naked because they, they, their fear has stripped them naked to make them vulnerable to every lie that's coming at them. Well, David had on an invisible 
armor. He was, he was clothed. And the clothing that he had was knowing that God was true. And he meant his word and he loved the people and he'd given himself in covenant. And he saw that as reality in his imagination. His identity came out of that and he knew that he lived in union with God, which then God himself was his wisdom, God himself was his strength, and he was the beloved of God and the giver of that love. That's why I say he was radiant, though not, they, they kind of could see it, but not visibly, they, they really felt the impact of it. He had hope. And until the whole army was talking about this kid, his expectancy, his anticipation of what God in his covenant love for this people, what he would do. Do, do you, I think you know what I'm talking about. You, you, you see images. I, I use the word pictures sometimes, but then people think it means literal, like a movie picture. Sometimes it is. But many times it's in symbols. Um, symbols by which I mean, okay, when I have prayed for some of you, well, the way I pray is not to try and find every word under the sun to talk about you getting insight and understanding. I see, I see you. And I see the light of God around you. And I just know that he's the light. And I hold you in the light. That's what praying without ceasing means. Every time I think of you, I see you in the light. That, that's the symbols of the imagination. And, and also the imagination can actually make you taste the reality of that which is not yet have substance. You can feel it. It rises, yes, you got it. See, it's what David was. It's what David was. You do realize that's what we mean by being born again. Actually, born again is an unfortunate translation. The word really is much better saying born from above. You are born from God. But what is that? The, the New Testament, my time is already going, so I can't stay here. But the New Testament always talks about your eyes being opened, seeing. Right, in Acts 26, 18, you've heard me talk about this a lot, where, where it says that Paul was to go, and it didn't, no, it didn't say go and get them saved. It, it, it says go and open their eyes. And it says, when their eyes are opened, that is, where, 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 where do eyes open that aren't these eyes? Huh. It's where you see. And we've all had in the past Goliath's eyes, and we've all had Israel's eyes. And Paul is sent to open their eyes. And when your eyes are open, what do we call that? We call it waking up. And in the New Testament, death or separation or perceived separation from God is linked with being asleep. When, when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, he said, let's go and wake him up. Do you remember that? And of course, the disciples didn't have a clue. They thought the chap was sleeping. And Jesus finally said, okay, guys, he's dead. But Jesus wouldn't use the term dead. He always said they're asleep. I said, their eyes are closed. They're in another world. We've been there. You, me, everybody. And there came the day when we heard the gospel that those eyes on the inside opened. We woke up. And we saw what was true. And what was true is that in the resurrection of Jesus, we were reborn out of death and carried face to face to the Father. We didn't know that, we were asleep. If you notice when you're asleep, life goes on and you wake up and realize a lot happened while I was asleep. 
Sometimes you are horrified. I was asleep. I must have, I must have fallen asleep. And I, I missed all of this. Well, this all happened before you were born and you were asleep in the sleep of, of, of death as if God was separated away from you. But then our eyes were opened. We were awakened. And it says, open their eyes so that they may turn from Satan to God. It says, once they see, of course, they'll turn from Satan to God. I didn't know I could. I thought this was life. This isn't life. This is futility. This is darkness. This is ignorance. I can turn from that. I've seen. I've seen. I've seen the finality of Jesus. I've seen. Or, or Ephesians 1.18. What does it say again? That the eyes of your understanding, the eyes on the inside, might be flooded with light so that you may know experientially the hope to which you've been called. Because the hope had always been there, but you didn't see it. He says, your eyes are open. Hope you're calling. And, and, and my experience and know the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's there. And read 1 Corinthians 2. It's full of this. Where again, you know, you've heard me quote this. Eye has not seen. Which eye? This eye? No. Deep eye. Deep eye. You eye. Eye has not seen. Your ears have never heard it. It's never entered into the heart slash imagination of mankind. You've never been here before. You can have imagination, Goliath, and you can have imagination, Israel, but you've never been here. This is an imagination that is reserved for those persons whose eyes have been opened and flooded with light. And now everything changes and we begin to frame our lives upon the truth as it is in Jesus. It's ground zero. Um, that's what David has done. He's framed a life that is based upon the covenant of God. And he's done it with intention. It's not a wish list. This is the way it is. And this is the way it's going to be. And I see it so. And I can hardly wait anticipation to see situations in which it happens. I expect it. That's where the Psalms come from. See, I know I can say it's fourteen, fifteen, but you realize some of the Psalms we have, he wrote when he was in his early 20s. And so we've been here. I'm not going here again <coughs> yet. <laughs> but you remember where he calls God by his name, I am, which is translated in our Bibles as Lord. But the real one, I am. God, I am. And David goes on, you remember, is my. Notice how he says that. I am is. He never says will be. He never is at a wishing well called prayer where we just say, oh, I wish you would do this. Oh, God, would you please do that one of these days, perhaps, maybe. No. This is David who looks straight into the eyes of God's covenant, giving of himself to him. The love that now embraces him, and he says, the I am is my. What is he seeing? My strength, my wisdom, my refuge. It goes on and on and on. Well, that's where he's, I know he's 14, but it's be five years from there when he starts writing that. He's seeing it already. He is my, or in the New Testament, Messiah is my life, said Paul. Is, is, is. That is. I see it done. Do, do you understand? Why, how, how can you say I see it done? Because God said so. And so I, I build in my imagination the images or the symbolic in whatever. I taste it. I feel it. That is who I am. And my thinking brain hasn't caught up with that yet. But that is who I am, and I, and I mean it. I'm, I, I've been trying to find other words. I keep coming back to it. You taste it. I feel it. It's, it's the same feeling as if you touched it, because it is so, and I see it so. That is 
I don't have to do anything. I am just resting into what God has done. I, I don't have to find a formula to get there because I realize is now. I see the end, but to me, I've got it. The hour is coming, but it now is. So when he looked at Goliath, the only image that he had of Goliath was of the, the man flat on his face, in the dirt, defeated. That's how he saw him from the beginning. That's how he talked to the everyone about his talk to. And you see, you can't pray for healing while you're imagining sickness. You know? You know how it is. You, you, you can pray and tell God the, the terrible situation of all the sickness, and I'm so sick, and, and the doctor said this, and they said this, and they said this, and oh God, heal me. No, because you're saying healing, but your imagination sees that you're half dead. Um, prayer is when you've connected the two, and what you say is what you're seeing, and, and, and you, you have it. And it's not saying it to try and get it. It's because you've got it. You just know. It's, you know that's where you are. You know that you know that you know, and you, you taste it, and you give thanks to God that it, it is so. It is so. And you look at the promises of God and really, what can you do? God said it. It's beyond me to think how he could ever do it. But that's none of your jolly business. It's your business is to see it done. And what, what, okay, the Virgin Mary, she received the message that no other person on the planet has ever received. So, I mean, she's out there. She's gone beyond all that anyone could ever call logic and sense. The messenger said to her that she would conceive, oh, by the way, no husband. She would conceive, she would bring forth a son, and, and that son would be none other than the son of God, and, and the, the, the whole thing would happen because the Holy Spirit would come upon her. Now, how are you going to think about that? How are you going to say, well, what should we do about that? How can we make that happen? She doesn't because she's got more sense. Although she was a 14-year-old kid too. Maybe it's only about 14-year-olds. Um, what did she say? Some of the greatest words in the entire Bible. She said, be it unto me according to your word. That is, you said it, it bees. I have no idea how. Be it according to your word. That's what David was doing. God said, the battle is the Lord's. He said, I can do it with one person if everybody else is afraid. He said, and I will protect you and I'll never leave you and I'm with you. David lived in the, be it unto me. According to your word, it is so because you said so, and I receive that. And of course, the Holy Spirit is the one who is the energy. If Goliath's dark energy fueled his imagination, now in this plane that no regular human can reach, only those who have come to realize Jesus, the reality. It's the Holy Spirit that joins us all together. And that, you see, that's quiet time. If you're going to have a quiet time, you know, sit down with the Holy Trinity with your coffee. Um, this is it. Where you allow the Holy Spirit to put the mind of Christ inside of you. And, and, and to see this situation as he sees it. To see you as he sees you. For you to see him as he really is. It happens in that inside place. That's the inside. That's what Psalm 91 calls the, the shadow of the Almighty. That place you go into. You abide under the wings of God. It's, that's where it is. And, and you see the truth. You see the truth. And I love this. And okay. Uh, just give me this. Okay. 
because I do love it so. Um, he, he said, look, my, my job, my job, I'm a shepherd. And, and sheep up there in the hills, bears, mountain lion. I mean, that, that's, that's par for the course. If you're a shepherd, you've got to know how to deal with that. And he said, this, this covenant, this covenant relationship, he says, it, it relates to my job. He said, bears and lions come, the Lord is my strength, and the Lord is my know-how, the Lord is my ability, and I go. And he said, I take the lambs out of the mouth of the lion. And if the lion gets antsy, I kill it. He said, this Goliath, what's the difference? That night I did that last Wednesday. And um, so this is, you know, Thursday. Uh, this is just another day, another event, because it's the same God doing the same commitment. He, he, in fact, he said, I love it. He said, Goliath has been delivered into my hand. I love that. It's as if the covenant God lover has said, you know me, David. You know that I'm in you. Let's do this together. And, and, and I'll put this man in your hands for you to finish him off, you see. I'm talking about you because you are in a better covenant than David. Did you realize that? And I love David. You, you would think that coming into the middle of that situation with a group of terrified soldiers and a coward for a king, you would think that he just might get a bit uppity, you know, walk among them like a superior Superman, maybe get a cloak or two, you know. He doesn't. He doesn't mock their unbelief, nor does he demean them for being a, a herd of fear-filled cowards doesn't his brothers are very angry at him shut up you kid because they were embarrassed <laughs> they knew that he was right and they were wrong but that's why they were angry but he doesn't mock them he, he keeps talking to them just like a little kid but talking what he sees. And when he stood with Saul the king, do you remember that? And he said, I don't, I'm trying to, he's only 14 years old. He stands before the king of Israel. And he said, look, he said, let no man's heart fail them for fear. I will go and deal with this man. But do, why didn't he just say, I'm here, I'll deal with it? No, he says, look, everybody out there, they're almost having a heart attack out of fear. Uh, don't, don't, don't. He said, I'll handle this, okay? You relax, I'll handle this. It's like Deuteronomy 20 and the fearful go home. It's as if David is saying, it's okay, guys, you're afraid. You, you can go home, I, I'll handle I love that. that. There's no arrogance. There's no pride. There's no sneering. There's no... All he wants, and he said that this is going to happen so that the whole earth might see that there is a God in Israel. So that's his concern. He says that y'all might, might see. I'm going to give you a demonstration. I'm going to uncover the truth. And you're going to see what I see. And also, he represented Israel. And he was aware of that too. I mean, these, this was the army. But if Goliath had had his way, if Goliath had won, as he imagined he would, well, there was an entire Israel out there of towns and villages and cottages and ranches they weren't at the battlefield. They didn't know what was going on. 
And therefore, they would have been surprised one morning with the Philistines taking over their ranch. David was the representative of thousands of people that weren't there. When he went down the side of that mountain or hill to meet with Goliath, not only was every soldier in the army with bated breath following his every move because they knew in reality they were in David. He was their representative. What happened to David happened to them. But also the whole of Israel behind them who didn't know what was going on, they are in David too. He represents them. Or as the scripture says, New Testament, we are members one of another. That this that you know within, this inner seeing, as I said, you are a transmitter. We're members one of another. Don't tell me it doesn't matter what I imagine. It matters. You've transmitted it. It's broadcast. You, you, can, you can carry your whole church and, and bring about the defeat of darkness. It's... they watched David and they watched what happened and as it happens it dawns on them David was right they see before their own eyes the invisible seeing of David has become visible before their eyes history now flesh on it and it explodes within them and they participate in David's faith and they up and they run down into the valley where they've never dared go before. And they finish the job. They chase the Philistines off their property. And of course, this was the beginning for David. David was the turning point in the history of Israel. He created a nation that believed what he believed and saw what he saw. Well... I, I, I'll end where I started. What do you see? What do you see? And I think at least we've got something that we can, that the Holy Spirit use to show us what we are seeing and bring us to see the truth as it is in Jesus and to begin to frame our lives on that and to see him work bringing it to substance. Amen. And amen. Another blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That blessing encompass you, opening your inner eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to see who you are in him as you transmit his life into the world in which we live. So I bless you and declare that is the way it is. Amen.